Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, as promised, this week we get to hear from bassist Graham Maybe. I love Graham so much. Now, if you remember from last week, we brought on three of Joe Jackson's guitarists to discuss that section of Joe's career, which basically entailed the late 70s into the early 90s. Well, Graham has been by Joe's side all along, pretty much since the beginning, and there have been pockets of inactivity, and we discuss those pockets in here because they're really interesting. Not only was Graham off working with other people, but he and Joe had to learn how to kind of communicate better with each other. Sometimes there was some hurt feelings. Sometimes there's, uh, you know, a, an assumption of a commitment that isn't actually, you know, in writing and how to deal with that. So we learn a lot, a lot about the dynamic between Graham and Joe and we cover basically the rest of Joe's career. I mean, last week was a focus on, as I said, the late 70s and the early 90s. Well, this conversation catches us up. We get into, you know, the more recent albums, including Fool, Joe's last studio album that came out, uh, what, year and a half ago? Something like that? Two years ago? So anyway, we talk about all of that and, you know, their dynamic and their friendship and what it's like working together. And you can tell that Graham... First of all, it's really interesting to me that Graham tells it to us straight and uh, what it's really like. They have a, a fantastic partnership, but, you know, Joe is Joe and Graham respects that and he understands it. And uh, so anyway, there's a lot to be learned here about all that. But Graham has also done some other really fun things. He, too, played with Marshall Crenshaw for a while. They're friends. He also played with, do you guys remember Henry Lee Summer from the late 80s? Indiana singer with a giant blonde mullet. I love that guy. Graham played with him for a little while. He played with people like Ian Hunter, They Might Be Giants, Joan Baez, uh, Natalie Merchant. We talk about all kinds of people in here that Graham did as well as Joe. So I really see this is a fantastic conversation. In fact, we talk almost as much about the music we like as the music Graham made as last week's because through it all first of all you get to hear the whole joe story and you get to learn what all these fantastic musicians what else they've done and those stories as well it is so great i love graham he is one of my favorite musicians ever he's a part of so much music that matters to me and it is a huge honor to share this story with you huge thanks to, to tom Teeley especially who hooked us up graham called me from his home in great neck Let's start it off. Two things. Number one, I got to tell you that my son is 11 years old and his name is Graham and he's partially named after you. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm honored. Yeah, no pressure there or anything like that. But yeah. uh, you know, when it came to naming my son, I, uh, I thought, you know, there are names I like because they are attached to people I like and you being right. one of those people. And I thought... Let's go with Graham. My youngest well, son is named Eddie, and it's for similar reasons because there's a lot of great rock and roll Eddie names, you know, Eddie Vedder, good. Eddie Van Halen, whatever, Eddie Cochran. Eddie Cochran so, right, yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, just wanted you to know that. Well, I, I appreciate that. You know, I, I've always liked my name. Yeah. Um, and as a matter of fact, I, I don't really know where my parents got the idea from because there are very few Grahams even in England. There are some, however, uh -huh. but... I, I can't think back to who would have been, where, you know, where they would have gotten the name from unless, 
you know, unless either of them, either of my parents knew someone called Graham when they were like kids or in the army or something. So. Yeah. Well, I really don't know that. Yeah. So, but well, I've, always, I've always liked my name. So there you go. Good. I like it too, obviously. I, <laughs> I stuck my kid with it. And then secondly, and this is where I want to kick this off. A few years ago, I had Jim Babjack on here from the Smithereens. Yes. And I can't remember if it was in our interview or it was in a side conversation he and I were having, but he had mentioned just sort of in passing, I think he, that you two were at your house or his house, listening his, to house. his house, listening to records. Yeah. And my brain nearly exploded because here's <laughs> maybe my favorite guitar player and maybe my favorite bass player hanging out with each other yes. at their house playing records. And well, yeah, I know that's pretty amazing. Well, they were Jim's records, and he loves to play vinyl. So, yes, so we were we were sitting around listening to old, you know, classic rock albums. Really, rock, which I don't really do. I have a turntable, but I, I don't even know if it works at this point. I've still got <laughs> plenty of vinyl albums, but I don't sit around listening to them. But yeah. he does, so he's the real deal, you know. <laughs> I'm just imagining. I would. I'm just thinking. I would give anything to be a fly on the wall in that room, <laughs> listening to you two listen to music and talk about it. What do you listen to when you're hanging out with Jim? I'm just trying to remember. You know, probably like you know, just uh, classic '60s rock albums. Like okay. we, probably the Who. I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was something we were listening to. Um, it was on his birthday a couple of years ago. That's that's what he was referring to. Okay. And I've known his, you know, he lost, we, we both lost our wives to cancer mm -hmm. in the last 10 years. And his girlfriend now, Cindy, I have known her since the 80s. So, so and I've also known, I mean, I know the smithereens very well because sure. uh, Dennis is also a very close friend of mine, Dennis Dyken. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Oh, wow. See, I don't really remember exactly what we were listening to. Okay. But, uh, so, it was so some classic, classic 60s rock vinyl. That's amazing. Um, they're, they're one of my favorite bands ever. And uh, so let me ask kind of a weird question. When you get together like that, do you guys play songs that you grew up and love and have heard a million times? Are you listening to like, I can't explain, or are you showing each other obscure tracks that the other person may not know in hopes of kind of turning them on to it? You know what I mean? When you, if you're a music lover, you do one of two things. You either bond with the stuff that you love, or you're constantly trying to like educate other people on what the, on things they may like that they don't know. I wouldn't be so, I mean, I, I feel like I've, when it comes to those guys, I feel like they taught me way more uh, than I've taught them. You know, they're kind of like those guys in that band. They're real historians of that era. You know, this, yeah. the the fifties and sixties and seventies rock. They are all over that shit. Well, you know, uh, we've had some interesting conversations too, because especially Dennis and I, we 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 talk a lot about. The Beatles, because of course we're both Beatles nuts, you know. Sure. And sure. I remember one time we were having this argument about um, there's a there's a Beatles album. I think it might be called Yesterday and Today. Uh huh. And I think he told me he loves that album. And I said, well, I said I don't even know that album because that was not an official British release. So I never I never had that album. I never grew up with that album. I said we got the official officially sanctioned 
Beatles mm -hmm. releases with with no songs left off. Yeah. Um, many people seem to not know that the first Beatle album to come out exactly the same on both sides of the Atlantic was Sgt. Pepper. And, mm. and, and Capitol Records in the USA screwed, they took a lot of liberties. They would release an album, they'd leave several tracks off, and then they'd make another album out of the scraps from one album. Oh, right. They'd put B-sides and singles, which the Beatles never put their singles on albums, except Please Please Me, it was about mm. the only one. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so but Dennis was like going on about this album because he said it's it's like uh, it's like a bunch of songs, mostly like acoustic uh -huh. guitar type songs. And mm -hmm. he said, so the whole album has a mood. And I said, well, I said, that's a great idea on someone's part. But I said, I don't have an opinion about it because, uh, uh, you know, I grew up with that with the British albums. I'm used to the sequencing. Of yeah. It. Like when one song ends, I know the next song. I know. So what true going to be and yeah. he said well he feels that way about about yesterday and today and i'm like <laughs> well i said you're never going to convince me that that album was a good idea i said that album was not put together by by the by the beatles you know yeah. that, was some, that was some money grubbing capital <laughs> records executives just trying to to stretch the product as far as it goes oh, anyway. that's so, funny. so that's the kind of that's the kind of shit we talk about anyway. i love it i love it oh man i just want to be in that room listening i don't even have to say anything oh that's great um okay so let's let's go back to the beginning uh obviously you're You've done a lot of things. I want to ask you about a lot of them, but your primary gig over these years have been working with Joe. I am curious. You've probably been asked this a million times. I believe you two were friends growing up, but how did you come together? Well, when I met Joe, he was 19 and I was 21. And I'd been in a few local bands, terrible local bands mm -hmm. that all had terrible names. Joe had must have seen me at a gig and I had seen him around too. We, we actually used to see each other at concerts. Mm. We didn't actually, I don't think we knew each other's name, but we would kind of eyeball each other, you know, like, mm -hmm. and somebody told me he was a good musician. And, you know, of course he was tall and unusual looking. And mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, but I, I honestly, I don't know where he got my, uh, where he got my address from, but he had joined a band when he was 19. He had left school. He was going to the London Royal Academy of Music. And he had joined a local band to do gigs and make some extra money when he wasn't going up to London to study. And the the guys that started that band that were called Edward Bear. Right. Ter another terrible name. It so, is. so these guys, these two guys that had started that band after Joe had been in the band for a while, they they decided they were going to, you know, hang it up mm -hmm. and. Joe, basically, for what I don't even know why they were going to hang it up, but um, I think maybe they were doing too many gigs and their wives were giving them a hard time. Mm -hmm. or something like that. So Joe decided he thought he had the idea to keep the band going. So he asked these guys, well, can I keep the band going uh, if you leave, you know? And they said, yeah, sure. Knock your socks off. So to that end, Joe rang my doorbell one day. Mm -hmm. I was living at home with my parents and mm -hmm. the doorbell rang and there's there's this guy I'd sort of seen at concerts and he asked me to join the band that he was playing with. So, and it was all very, it was humble beginnings, John. It sure. was very, uh, you know, we were doing crummy pubs and, yeah. and clubs and, you know, just shitty, shitty gigs, you know, doing cover tunes, 
you know, that was that was how it all began. It, That's because, how a lot of them began, though, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of your tenacity to work through those days that decides whether you have the tenacity to continue, you know? I mean, you got to got to start somewhere it seems like that's right that's yeah, right. yeah. one well, thing um, anyway so that was the beginning of it that's how okay. he, came, he literally rang my doorbell and that's funny sat down in my parents front room and, and asked and asked me to join this band so that's wild <laughs> i read his book uh years ago yes and i haven't read it correct. since yes and i haven't read it since so i if you forgive me if i ask obvious things that were in the book because i read it but i don't i mean it was like 17 years ago i don't remember it very well but one thing that did strike me about that book is he says in there what an influence steely dan was which i sure. think which i think is so interesting because you guys i think i've heard you mention this in other interviews that you know the sex pistols and the punk stuff that's coming out you guys and obviously Elvis Costello and Graham Parker are all being influenced about this stuff. And that came as a surprise, the Steely Dan thing, until I started thinking about the ear and focus on musical sophistication, which I think is a part of Joe's music, but it probably became more borne out as the years went on. Does that make sense? So when you're when you're starting out and you're listening to punk and you guys are these young guys is is Steely Dan being thrown around as a name? Like, guys, this let's sound more like Steely Dan. No, that's not really, okay. That's not really how it happened. The, the several years before we ever made the first album, um, that the band I just was telling you about evolved in uh, through a, a couple of changes, and it evolved into a band that ended up being called Arms and Legs, and um, another terrible name, <laughs> and. Um, uh, we what we would listen to as members of that band, we would listen to music all the time. And this was before punk, so this was 1975, uh, okay, okay, 1975, 1976. We were listening to Little Feet and Rufus, uh, sure. We were, we were listening to Bob Marley, we were listening to Steely Dan, we, even like the Doobie Brothers, and uh -huh. uh, we were listening to. We'd all, and plus we'd all grown up through, through the the, the blues rock, um, prog rock thing. So, you know, I mean, I used to listen to Cream and Hendrix and then mm. Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin. So that, yeah. So the whole punk thing, really. I, I, I mean, we got lumped in with that. Mm. But what happened was that when, at the time that Joe wrote the songs and and made, and we all made that first album look sharp. That was what was going on. And yeah. we got we got kind of like lumped in with that, you know. Mm -hmm. And some of the, you know, oh, I some of the tempos of the songs were kind of like <laughs> we were taken at breakneck speed. It's funny though, because when I listen to bands like the police mm -hmm. and XTC, who were bands I loved back then, yeah. Yeah. and uh, you know, there there was a an energy that was appropriate to the time. Yes. But I think that that people like certainly Elvis Costello and Sting and um, and even XTC, they were way more creative than, yeah. than that narrow genre would have allowed Very them true. to be. So they, yeah. they, they, they all outgrew that and including yeah. Joe, you know. So yeah, I think absolutely. That was just a, a moment in time for everybody. That's yeah, not, I mean, I'm so. not, And that's not to diminish no punk rock thing because i think that was essential that yeah. was that was what was needed at the time for sure yeah yeah i think you're absolutely right all every person you just mentioned you're right has gone on to 
be way more creative and do way more things, including classical music and what I mean, all of them have, you know, touched on all that kind of stuff. And so right. punk was just sort of the way to kick the door down to to get started so that you could be creative, as creative as you wanted for the rest of your career, basically. You know? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that's right. That's right. Yeah. I, okay. I don't think it's anything to be ashamed of at all. It's no. Just, it just happened. I mean, look at look at what the Beatles were doing when they became popular, and what they were doing by the time that they broke up. I mean, true. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's got to grow. You know. Exactly. Um, and if they don't, if they don't, then you know, no one's going to remember them or or want to know anything about them. It's <laughs> so true. It's so true. Now, when he first came to you, my understanding is that he pitched it as he had an idea for a band that was where the bass was going to be the lead instrument. Was that how right. it was pitched to you? Why did what was he thinking about? Why was that the case? Do you think? Uh, I think it was a, a function of of, uh, of guitar solo overload. Uh, I, I think I think there had been so many years of the guitar player histrionics being the focal point of so many bands. I think Joe had this idea that he was going to he was going to have a guitar player, but he would just be a rhythm guitar player. It's funny, I was thinking about this recently. There was a band at the time in Britain called Dr. Feelgood. Yeah, yeah. And, and the guitar player in that band was great, uh, Wilco Johnson. His name mm -hmm. was Wilco Johnson. And I think he's still active now, as a matter of fact. He is. But, um, he, he was manic on stage, but he wasn't like a lead guitar player in, in the mold of like your David Gilmore's and your Jimmy Page's. He wasn't like that. He was just sort of like, you know, it was more about like, scratching out like rhythm guitar parts and just being being a maniac on the stage mm -hmm. and I, I so i think that joe had the idea that the lead guitar there didn't need to be a lead guitar he would mm. he would he would shift the focus and he you know he and i had been working together for five years at that point so yeah. he he said you know what do you think about the idea of being the focal point of the sound mm -hmm. and i you know i'm, I'm like what was I supposed to say to that? <laughs> oh, that's a well, terrible idea, Joe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and he came through. I mean, Sunday Papers, Got the Time, Obviously, Is She Really Going Out With Him? These are all songs that are based very strongly on bass lines you came up with. I um, No, I didn't. Oh, he came up with those. He's, You know, I, I, I feel like I'm bursting people's bubbles, but, you know, <laughs> Duke Ellington's bass player didn't make up his parts, you know. Yeah, good point. He 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 was presented with sheet music, and it's like, here, play this. And it wasn't quite like that with me. But all those bass lines that people think are so great, mm -hmm. you know, almost all of them are Joe's ideas. You know, mm. that's and I, I'm not ashamed of that. Yeah. I think it's I think it's wonderful that he had a fully fleshed out concept for almost every single song. He yeah. would come to rehearsals and he would basically instruct everybody, this is what this is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to do. That's not to say there wasn't any room to, quote unquote, make it your own. Sure. But I, you know, I'm not going to go on record as saying I, I, I created those baselines. That's, that's mm. just not how it was. OK, what do you think? And I've asked this of the other three guys, too. And I'm curious why Joe keeps you around. And I don't mean that derogatorily, but I mean, you know, he works with a lot of different people and, you know, guitarists or drummers come in and out of his sphere, depending on his mood, what he's working on. But he always seems to go back to you. And I wondered why, what is the magic there in the chemistry that you two have that he knows he always wants you a part of his project? 
That is a good question. And you probably just have to ask him that question. Uh, but I, I can tell you, the one thing I know about Joe is he's he's very loyal and, and he tends to stick with people he's comfortable with. There's a lot. That's a very important factor is the mm -hmm. comfort factor. Mm -hmm. the, the crew that we've been touring with for the last five years is basically been un, with with very few exceptions has been unchanged mm -hmm. and that's how he likes it you know he he's he's he doesn't do well with with the unfamiliar and uh, i think you know as long as i've been around i think he's been glad i mean he knows i'm not trying to to do myself a disservice i i've always been able to to give him what he needs in terms of yeah. of, of the music um, and and um, and uh, I've learned a lot from working with him too, you know, sure. we've known each other a long time. We're comfortable together. That's not to say we hang out all the time. Actually, right. our lifestyles are very, have been very different over the years. You know, mm -hmm. I've had kids and raised a family and, and, uh, he's, he hasn't done that. Yeah. I mean, other than that, I, I guess you'd have to ask him. Okay. I am curious as he goes off, uh, he follows his muse and I'm wondering if he, do you ever, as a sort of creative partner, I don't know if you would view yourself that way. Maybe that's my question, actually. Are you enough of a creative partner of Joe's that you could offer edits, critiques, suggestions, and he would listen? Or is it always, he's got a plan and a vision and you just get on board and let him do his thing? I think the answer to that is yes and no, because I, I wouldn't... Okay be so uh, brazen as to call myself a creative partner by any stretch of the imagination okay. especially especially in recent years joe comes you know joe comes fully armed with very elaborate and usually very good demos that he's mm -hmm. made now which he didn't used to do in the early days but now mm -hmm. i've been telling him he's got to make the demos shittier mm -hmm. because you know there's there's <laughs> just to leave a little more you know, for us mm -hmm. to 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 make our own, yeah. and uh, so that I could tell him something like that. You know, like your demos are too fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. Right. He has always known what he wants, and okay. I and I I, I I gotta tell you, John, I've worked with a few people over the years that don't really know what they want, and that's mm -hmm. that's terrible. That's yeah. tough. That's hard work. I could see that. Okay, so let me ask it this way. When you go back, when you listen back to, we'll start with Joe. I'm going to ask you about other people like Marshall here in a minute, but we'll, we'll start with Joe. When you when you listen back, is there a song that you can point us toward? Give us, Can you give us an idea of a song where you came up with something that you were kind of proud of? Or, you know, I did this little thing on there and I really liked it and Joe liked it and it stuck. Or is there an example of that? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. It's funny because uh, somebody mentioned this song that's on Look Sharp called Baby Stick Around. Uh -huh. And there's a there's a there's a bass solo on there. And
That was a case of, okay, come up with something. And uh, I actually really like that solo. I get a kick out of listening to it, uh, which isn't always the case. Um, yeah. So that's, that's one example. I mean, it's just a small example. Yeah, if I think of another one, yeah, there are, there are definitely examples like that. It's not like, it's not like every note. It, I mean, now I've told you that I didn't make up the, the essential bass lines. <laughs> you know, you're going to think I, I just basically, have, it, it, it's not like he gives me sheet music and I just play and anybody could play it. Sure. That's not, that's not how it is at all. In fact, some of the lines he's, he's presented over the years have been, and he's really good at knowing, you know, he studied composition and arrangement. So he knows what an instrument can do, the range mm -hmm. of an instrument and, and what's possible and what's not possible. But every now and again, he'll give you something where it's it's a little iffy you know it's like well yeah. that's going to be really tricky to do that you realize that uh-huh and he usually takes the the point of view that well you'll you'll you find a way to do it as close to that as possible okay so. let me give you an example whose idea was it his idea i assume it was to have you sing lead on beat crazy Okay. Although, yeah, no, yeah, it was his idea. That was based on those kind of reggae records where there'd be a good, well, I mean, and they still kind of do that nowadays. That kind of evolved into the rap records where you'll have like an, an actual singer singing something melodic and then an interlude of somebody uh -huh. rapping. So back then, I think they called what Joe did was toasting. Uh huh. So the That's talking it. bits were called toasting. And then there'd be the, the melodic bits in between. Yeah. And uh, so that was, yeah, that was his, that was his stab at doing something like that. Oh, so, that's great. Yeah. People, people like that one. I, I, <laughs> I love I it. I, I think I did. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you got a Dave Wakeling, Raking Roger kind of <laughs> dynamic going on there. Yeah. I love yeah, it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about Night and Day then for a minute. This is an album that, you know, by this time he's getting really into Latin things and he doesn't need a guitar anymore. Mm -hmm. But again, he keeps you around. Another World is one of my very favorite Joe songs overall. Mm -hmm. 
That's a great it, one, yeah. It is. And it seems like this is an album where he's taking some real risks, but then it becomes the most commercially successful. How did your life change when Joe is starting to like break pop top 40 radio in America? How did that change for you? Oh my God. That's a, that's a loaded question. Really? <laughs> oh my God. Well, yeah, that, that really was, was, was a pivotal yeah. point, point in my life for, for so many reasons. But the first reason was, I don't even know how to answer that question in a few words, really. Oh, I mean, first of all, we, we, the drummer Larry and I had had worked on the previous album, Jump and Jive. Mm -hmm. And the first thing we knew was we we got uh, we'd heard some some of Joe's demos and they were so different. You know, I listened to Breaking Us in Two. And And I just remember thinking that it was commercial suicide and this was the end of Joe's career. <laughs> yeah, because it was so different and there was no guitar. Yeah. And I remember thinking, at all, uh -huh. and I just remember thinking this is so different from what, the first three albums. The other thing that you have to factor in, John, is that the first two albums did really well. I'm the man and look sharp. And then the third album, Be Crazy, did not do so well. Yeah. And then the drummer left and we did this kind of one-off album called jump and jive which mm -hmm. people love but it, it didn't exactly sell in the right you know, hundreds of thousands yeah and i just remember thinking that maybe the party was over and things were kind of winding down so mm -hmm. when i heard these new demos i just thought well yeah that's about it you know yeah people won't people are not going to get it and then uh, joe sent larry and i a cassette tape to get ready for the recording, which was going to be in New York. And the cassette tape, um, when, when it arrived and I looked at the box, it said on the box, understanding Latin rhythms. <laughs> and, it, and, he, and, he, and it was a note in there saying, from Joe saying, you know, listen to this, boys, you know, it's just, it's like the basics. You'll get to, you'll get familiar with the rhythms and, and uh, you know, what, what constitutes <laughs> what constitutes Latin slash salsa music, you know? Uh -huh, uh -huh. And I remember listening to it and it was really great. It was very educational. 
and I think back on that now and I think why on earth did he not just use a Latin rhythm section of which there were zillions. Right. See, but he, again, I go back to the loyalty thing. I think he knew that he could get out of us what he wanted and he would prefer if, if it was us in the mm -hmm. studio than some strange session guys. I guess so. So Isn't that's a... what happened. So, yeah. we, so we traipsed over to New York and, uh, one thing I do remember was going to a lot of gigs and listening to a lot of Latin bands and fucking really good ones too. Like yeah. we saw Tito Puente and Ray Barreto and uh, nice. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was really exciting. And then we went in the studio and um, the, yeah, that, I mean, everything sounded really good. And I was excited that we were making another album mm -hmm. uh, that we were, that we're being, we were being allowed to make another right. album. Right. And the other thing was, you know, it's the first time I'd ever made an album in New York. So yeah, that was did, very exciting as well. Didn't it was that around the time you moved to Hoboken? No, that was several years before that. Oh, no, was so I was not living in the USA at that time. Okay. That was in 1982, okay. early early '82 when we made that record. Right. Then when, then when it came out, we went on tour and and because of stepping out and uh, and um, then there were a couple of other successful singles off that album too we just the u.s tour got extended and extended and we ended up staying in in the usa for months yeah uh, playing bigger places you know and then it just kind of kept getting better and we were you know we went to japan and australia mm. we were flying business class you know and yeah uh, getting getting treated like rock stars you so know? nice <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, so it was really exciting, except I kind of lost my way a little bit and got very disconnected from real life. And that um, that caused a, a crisis in 1983. And I, that's when I ended up moving, moving over to the USA. So really, can you do you want to elaborate on that or no? Well, I'll leave it up to you. Well, I mean, it's not like a secret. No, I mean, I, you know, I, uh, I, I, I met somebody who lived in Chicago. Oh. But I was already married to someone in England. So. Oh, got it. Okay, that's that's how it went. Got it. Okay. I up, yeah. So that's that's the story. So I ended up going to Chicago. I lived in oh. Chicago for two years and then moved to Hoboken in uh, 1986. Okay. Okay. I'm just always curious what the lives of rock stars are like. Um, yeah, well, it ain't all pretty. I can I can tell you I, that. I can see that. But you know what? You guys deal with the same challenges everybody else deals with too, in some ways. Okay, let me ask you specifically about stepping out because are you on that song? Because, and th that's and I, I I'm totally naive. I'm not a musician. I've it's such a prominent bass line, but it sound I've always assumed it's, it's, that it's it was a like sequence. A, it's a sequence. Yes, keyboard. Yes, it's yes. A sequence.
I, I, lo I love to tell people this. I am on that track. If you listen to next time you listen to it, uh -huh. near the near the end, the song breaks down to just kind of like drums and the keyboard playing the theme. Uh huh. So everything seems to drop out, including the sequence bass. And then when the bass comes back in, you hear it build back in. Da, 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 uh -huh. da. That's me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, because they couldn't, they, they had trouble programming the keyboard to do that. So what happened actually was that I, I doubled the whole thing. But in the end, they, they, they liked the sound of just the sequencer. But, uh -huh. but they couldn't find a way to get it to build. And so they used the real bass for the build. So. Okay. okay. There you go. So it's kind of a joke, really. But yes, I am <laughs> on the track. Okay. I've uh, I've seen you guys live a few times uh, since, and I know that it becomes, it gets really stretched out. It becomes a real showcase for the band. In fact, I saw you guys just almost a year ago exactly here in Denver where I live. You did the, you know, The Fool, and I think the show kicked off with Stepping Out, a very sophisticated kind of jazzy, loungy version of that that you no. guys... No. No? Actually, Am we, I wrong? No, we, no, we didn't. No, we didn't. We did stepping out um, no near the end of the show because I got to play the Glockenspiel part. Oh right, 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 right. Okay, yeah. yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, yes, that's uh, it's always a highlight live, but I can tell that you guys make it your own each time mm. you do it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one of Joe's strengths is you know he likes to keep it fresh, so he'll mm. he'll rearrange songs to keep it interesting and to keep people on their toes, you know, in, yeah. in the audience and the musicians. Yeah. So, and actually what was nice about the tour last year was that um, because he was honoring four decades in the business, four albums, we did um, a lot of the stuff from Look Sharp. We did it more or less as it was on the record. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, yeah. He, he likes to rearrange things and keep people guessing. So. Yeah. Um, it's such a fantastic, that was a great show and a great album and everything. Um, now I will say, and I don't even, I'm, I don't necessarily even have a question. I'm just declaring body and soul is my favorite Joe Jackson album. And, um, I don't have any question tied to that unless you have a story about it that you want to provide. You can, but I just wanted to throw it out there. And oddly enough, I think my second favorite Joe Jackson album is laughter and lust. And really? yeah. And I think that's probably, I have this theory, Graham, that, People's favorite albums from legacy artists are often the one that they bought with their own money, like in real time, you know, and Laughter sure. and Lust yeah. was the one where I, because I, I had, you know, Stepping Out is one of my earliest music memories, but I remember I either bought or I stole Laughter and Lust in high school. And uh, so that was the first one where I, I, you know, I owned it. I declared I need to have this album. And that's often where people's if not their very favorite their sentimental favorite is that album you know what i'm saying sure sure yeah. have you i i, I hope you t you told tom tealy that i did oh absolutely good, yeah good. we talked in depth about that album because um, did it. he did have you seen his little film that he took while we were making that record no i don't think so oh you got to find it you can find it on youtube it's a little okay tom tom had a little uh, video camera at the time and he went just went around the room filming things over the course of of making that record it, it's maybe 15 10 or 15 minutes long but it's it's pretty funny okay yeah yeah find it i it's, will look yeah, it up i think you can definitely find it on on youtube and if you if for any reason you can't find it just get back in touch with tom because he would okay. probably send it to you 
Excellent. You, you would in, if that if you love that album, you would definitely enjoy that video. I it sounds a little familiar. I might have seen it, but I can I'll check it out again because that that is uh, those are my two go to Joe albums. Wow, um, that's interesting. Well, Lost yeah. was a was a was a really good album. I think I and, do too. Uh, a lot of really good songs on there, and I really enjoyed that tour. As a matter of fact, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's one of my favorites. Now, when he starts to transition into the classical stuff, I mean, there's probably no way of knowing that this is going to go on for a decade necessarily, and that I can't. I know you're on night music. I don't remember if you're on Heaven and Hell and Symphony. I'm, or... I'm, I'm I'm only on a couple of songs on night music. Okay. Although I did do the tour. Something's coming. Something big, something I can't stand. Dark as the ocean, secret and cruel, something I can't command. Something is waiting down in Mugger's Alley to see what's on my mind. Take a deep breath. Start walking faster It's dark but I'm not blind You never know If I push at this wall My hand could pass through So This cloud of unknowing Could disappear too It's only Another, that was another very interesting tour as well because um, we, we we didn't have a drummer on that tour. We just had a percussionist and um, Allison who played violin and keyboards and sang. And uh, I actually ended up I played acoustic guitar, electric guitar on that tour as well. Mm, so okay. it was yeah, that was very different. I'm, but I'm, I'm not curious. I'm not on Heaven and Hell by the way. I'm not I didn't think so. Yeah, I didn't think so. Okay, so during this period. What's it like in, as a musician, in a hired hand, basically, in your position, where your primary job is to support somebody who is now doing different things, taking longer breaks between projects? Uh, do you Does Joe tell you, hey, Graham, just so you know, you may want to go align yourself with someone else for a little while because that, it might be a couple of years? Does he put you on retainer? Does he, how does the, what is it, how does it work? You know? That's a, that's a, that's a very good question. We, we kind of had to learn that lesson the hard way. I bet. The two, the two of us, because, because, well, a couple of funny things happened. So you, you, you said that Body and Soul is one of your favorites too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, at the end of the tour, at the end of the Body and Soul tour, Joe was kind of burned out and he actually was, saying to us and actually sometimes he would say it to the audience too which was must have been confusing but he was saying he was he was not going to do this anymore mm. Mm. he would say this is my best band on my last tour i remember he said that at least once on stage so we got back from that tour so bear in mind this was 1985 80, mm -hmm. 84 and i'd been touring with him for five or six years done half a dozen albums with him 
Yeah. And now all of a sudden he's saying he's not doing it anymore. So that's when I started working with Marshall Crenshaw. Yeah. Because I had met Marshall and I knew he was up to something. And he approached me and said, what are you doing? And I said, well, it looks like I'm doing nothing. And he said, do you want to go on tour? So I said, yes. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, you know, I mean, it's a longer story, but I'll give you the synopsis. Basically, right as I was about to start rehearsing with Marshall, Joe calls and says, uh, oh, I've got some new songs. So we're going to start working on a new. And I said, wait, 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 wait a minute. You, you said you were you were done. Right. What's going on? And he said, oh, well, yeah, well, you know, yeah, there was that. But anyway, but I've written some songs. And, and I said, well, look, I, I've made a commitment to do a tour. Uh -huh. And uh, so anyway, so it all it didn't end well. And I, I did the tour with Marshall and Joe was pissed off and he didn't talk to me for a couple of years. And oh, yeah, it was, it was very awkward. And in the meantime, Joe did his project, which was called Big World. Yep. Stop everything. Honestly, though, John, I think it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I I hadn't worked with anybody else except for Joe at that level. Uh -huh. After working with Marshall, which was a great experience, and I still I still work with him on and off very yep. infrequently these days. But I, I yeah I, I love Marshall and I love his music and that, that I'm so pleased that that was a part of my life. Yeah. Um, and after that, I, I I did a few other things as well, and I just. And it really was good for my self-confidence that I could work with other people and I, that I could work in this country. I was yeah. very insecure. When I first started working on Body and Soul, I can tell you this. You know, I remembered that everyone else in the band was from the USA. Uh -huh. And furthermore, they pretty much all had legitimate musical educations. Uh -huh. And they're standing around in the rehearsal room talking about quarter notes and, uh, you know... <laughs> three sharps and and i'm like what the f like what language is this you know and I, f I felt very very insecure you know so but you know what i did was i went out and i took some theory lessons and mm. and i kind of demystified everything and i was like oh okay so i actually realized i knew i knew more than i thought i just didn't know how to verbalize it or yeah so yeah i really i was i was a completely self-taught player by ear and i had never 
yeah, I, I realized once I got to the USA and I started working with the US, these musicians that there was a problem and I had to yeah. do something about it. So Fans, anyway. Fascinating. Wow. Okay. I want to, let's see. I'm going to save Marshall. For, I, I I love Marshall a lot too. And I've had him on here a couple of times. He's a good oh, yeah. guy. Yeah. yeah he's, um, he's, uh, he's got some good stories, I'm sure. He does. He's one of my favorites too. Okay. So let's wrap up Joe before we get into anyone else here. Okay. The reunion comes around and um, I'm curious, you know, I talked to Gary about this a little bit. Gary. Gary Sanford. Oh, okay. All right. When you said yeah. Gary, I thought maybe you meant Gary Burke. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. Yeah. Gary Sanford and I talked about this a little bit. Okay. And um, I am curious if you know what sparked this, you know, it had been a long time. He had been, I guess he was starting to inch his way back into pop music with Night and Day Part 2. It's a hell of a town. Smoke coming up through the holes in the ground. It's a hell of a town. Plenty of devils for taking you down. think that it was time to get the original band back together i believe well it was you... 25 years for one was that it, it coming, okay it was coming up 25 years the other thing about joe that i've noticed is that he works well when he's got a a, a kind of a a concept yep um yeah. the, you know the, a, a, once he's got the concept then everything else seems to flow so yeah. i think like for instance doing doing the um the heaven and hell thing. Obviously, clearly, that was a concept. Even night music, because that was a different, darker, moodier thing. And I think once he he got into that mindset, then the songs came out. I think the idea of putting that band back together, he all of a sudden, all these songs that were so suitable for the four of us just kind of came out. And yeah. you know, when we got together and we started rehearsing them in England in when was that 2002 i suppose it was I think 2002 so. uh or yeah i mean we, we we hadn't played together for for 20 years and it was just like we it was like 20 years had had not happened yeah we, we still had the energy and we still i thought our, our, the very very first rehearsal we just looked at each other when we were we were grinning all over our faces because it was like, wow, we, we still found, we still sound fucking great. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, so okay, I, have, I think that was a big motivation for Joe, and, and that's where that. it was coming from. 
I think once he thought about the idea, I never thought he would put, quote unquote, put the band back together. I was, mm -hmm. I was shocked when he suggested it. But once I heard the material, I was like, okay, I, I see what happened. He got the idea and then all of a sudden the music came out. So. Yeah. Um, okay, let me ask you about Rain real quick. That again, you nailed it when you mentioned Joe needing a concept or um, something to kind of, you know, focus his creativity in a certain way. Oh, direction. absolutely, yeah. is a wonderful album if anyone doesn't know it's uh of course it's softer and quieter because it's just the trio but it's a really beautiful piece of work and i wondered you know what your thoughts on that were if there was do you know what fed his ideas for rain well in 1999 we had done a few gigs in new york um with gary burke on drums mm -hmm. just as a trio and we recorded an album that way at joe's pub um, that was 1999, and the album is called Summer in the City. Summer in the City, right? Yeah. So that was the beginning of that idea. And then after after the Volume Four tour, I don't know if Gary Sanford mentioned anything about the fact that it, the tour didn't end so well between him and Joe. Oh, I don't know if I knew that. I don't think he mentioned. Yeah. That. Okay. Well, anyway, yeah, but but okay. so so after that tour, Joe started thinking about resurrecting the trio idea but mm -hmm. keeping dave houghton on drums mm -hmm. and that's what that's what we did so we did i remember we did a tour to see how it would work and it worked really well and then he went back to berlin where he was living where he still lives most of the time and wrote the songs that became rain and then we recorded them and then we did another t couple of tours so yeah Okay. Yeah, it's a beautiful record. Um, okay, yeah, last yeah. one, just to bring us close to the present. I want to ask you about Fast Forward real quick. I mentioned this when I was talking to Tom, that Joe is not somebody who does a lot of covers. Um, but Laughter and Lust has that great Fleetwood Mac cover, Oh Well. And then Fast Forward has television and See No Evil.
all, for a guy who doesn't do a lot of covers, it's interesting to see what he decides he wants to interpret, you know? And so right. I wonder, you know, were you guys television fans? Were you, what oh, fed yeah. that? Okay. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, Marky Moon. I, I feel like everyone I know glommed onto that album. That was, yeah. that was, a, uh, that was a real special moment. That was right in the middle of... That see that to me was you know it wasn't punk rock that was oh. that was something different that was some just interesting songwriting and orchestration but it was a rock band playing them you know yeah yeah and 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 even Tom Tom Verlaine's singing was unconventional everything was unconventional but I thought that was, that album was stupendous it's funny so because I. you know I I bought that album based on one of the most ecstatic reviews I've ever read of any album ever mm. in the, in this magazine called, well, a weekly music newspaper called the NME new musical. Sure. Express. Of course. Yeah. And I remember reading this guy, Nick Kent wrote this review and I, I just thought, well, I gotta go buy that album. <laughs> and I remember thinking if this sucks, I'm going to write to Nick Kent and just, <laughs> you know, give him peace of my mind. But it was such an amazing album. I still love that album to yeah. this day. So when Joe said he wanted to do that song, I was like, yeah, great, great idea. Nice. I love that song. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, most days I'm of, I'm of the opinion that that might be the best debut album in history. That's for me and my tastes and my personality. That's the one that rises to the top. I do love to me, it. It's funny because it's funny you say that because I feel like, you know, it's a bit like um, Harper Lee. You know, she could never mm, write another. Yes. She, she was almost paralyzed after she, she wrote... To, uh, uh, to kill a mockingbird because yeah. of the expectations. I feel like I feel like television were it was somewhat similar. I think that that there was so much expectation after that album that you know most yeah. most most artists you know they they won't peak with their first album, but I almost think they did. So yeah, anyway. I agree. I've never thought of it that way, but you nailed it. That is exactly right. Because that one piece and everything they did after that was okay, but it could never could quite measure up to the just the weird majesty of that debut album. It's unlike anything anyone had ever heard or had ever done before totally. or since. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. It was, it, that was that was a real milestone. That's Agreed. Uh, okay, let's talk about Marshall. I, again, I love Marshall. I've had him on here a couple of times. I believe you show up around the Mary Jane period. Is that or Mary Jean? I'm sorry, Mary and Jean, nine others. Yeah, yeah. yeah? So that, okay, that, that would be his his fourth album, I think. Right. I think he's one of the best American songwriters we have, just in terms of just a just perfect pop songs that aren't yeah. simplistic. Yeah. You know, there and uh, and he does no. it time after time after time. I, he's an he's a miracle to me. So, yeah. what he's was a, he's, he's a miracle of science, John? Yes, that's it. Miracles. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> oh, I love it. So, what do you think? What made you two come together? What was the what's the electricity between Graham and Marshall that make this relationship work? I mean, it's a funny thing because I've I've been actually working on my own memoir which I'm probably about three quarters of the way through. Nice. And it's going to be damn good, I'm telling you right now. I believe it. <laughs> I believe it. Uh, if, anyway, um, I've obviously devoted a chapter to Marshall, and the, the, the pivotal, for me, the pivotal moment was the very, very first time I ever heard him. He, the, the, his trio were opening for Joe at Pier 54 mm. in Manhattan on, on the Night and Day Tour in 1982. 
Mm. And um, they started with a song by this kind of kind of lamo British singer called Cliff Richard. <laughs> they yeah. did this song called Move It. See, Cliff uh -huh. was Cliff was like touted as the the the, the English Elvis back in uh -huh. his day. I remember. Yeah. So in the late fifties and uh, move it. So move it is such a derivative <laughs> song. It's, you know, they're trying to sound, trying to make him sound like Elvis. Uh -huh. So I, I heard Marshall do this song and I was like astonished because first of all, I didn't think anyone in the USA would even know that song. So mm -hmm. I was so impressed. And the other thing was they killed it. They, they, they made that song sound great. And I was like, I recognize this song. And then uh -huh. I, when I realized what it was, I was like, I got to go meet these guys. Like they must be cool. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. And then I, so I stood and I watched their whole set and I thought his songs were great. I love that. I love the band. I love their harmonies. And I went, I just, I, I sought them out after the show yeah. and I just wanted to meet them. And we all just hit it off. And, you know, there were such a bunch of goofballs, not uh, Marshall's the, probably the, 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 the more reticent of, of the whole, but the rest of them were just, a bunch of uh, yeah, hilarious knuckleheads, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. And we had so much fun. Just I just remember that day. I, I just felt like I found some bunch of new friends, you know. Yeah. And um, so we stayed in touch after. We they did do some more gigs with us too. So we did hang out some more. Okay. Oh, and then yeah, so it was a, three or four years later when Marshall called me, and, uh, and so that's how that was my introduction to Marshall. So so thanks Cliff Richard for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one's ever said that before. No, you know? probably not. Probably <laughs> That's funny. So is there a song that you worked on on one of the albums with Marshall? Uh, Good evening, what's in the bag uh, that you're particularly proud of? I was just about to do a show on Friday night that got canceled because of the coronavirus. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, it, it would have been a thousand people in the audience and the governor has limited it to uh, 500 or less. So I think maybe yeah. it's even less than that now. But yeah. um, it was going to be Marshall was going to be on that gig, and um, some friends of mine and I were, were 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 going to back him up. And we were one of the songs we were going to do was uh, from Good Evening, and it's a song called "You Should Have Been There." Ooh, uh, nice! I love that one. It's it's what you would call a deep cut, but that's a great song. Huh? You should have been there. And stars were spinning all around Do you care? You should have been there I saved you a place right by my side And waited there in the candlelight And the only friend I had in sight Was an empty chair You should have been there Ran into some people we used to know The backing vocals are really fun to sing as well. So. Good. Okay. So um, that, that's definitely one. That's okay. Definitely one. 
Awesome. Um, um, there's another one uh, from Mary Jean and Nine Others if you want to play. Um, yes. Uh, um, this Street. That's a deep cut too. That's wow. a deep cut too. But you know what? That song somehow or other is in. There's a movie called Baby Mama that Tina Fey did. Ah. Oh. <laughs> and I believe that song is somewhere in really that, in the soundtrack to that movie. Yes. No way. Yeah. Good for I, know. Tina. I don't. I, I I don't think I've actually seen that movie, but I'm told. Okay. I think I, I, think I got a some sort of yeah some some kind of payment for that. So okay. I, I think it must be true. Okay. Good. Good. Now, I want to ask, I don't know that I knew this until much later in my life, that you worked with Henry Lee Summer. Oh, yeah. Henry. I love that guy. I've oh. tried to get him on here several times, and his people say he doesn't like to do interviews, and oh. maybe we'll do it when he when he'll, when he's going to promote something, but then it never happens. I just, that guy was great. Tell he's us the, the Henry Lee Summer story. He, I mean, he was the last person in the world I would have thought I would go on yeah. tour with. But what happened was he was a big deal in Indiana right? in the mid or late 80s. And he got signed to Epic, I think. It was CBS. Yeah, it was Epic. And um, they brought him to New York to record his debut album for Epic. And um, a friend of mine that had worked with Joe was working on the record and he recommended me. Henry arrived with just the drummer from his Indiana band. Okay. And um, so I'm the bass player on the album. And then, you know, he's just, he's such a joy to work with. He's just like the real deal. He's just kind of like an all shucks hayseed. Right. But, but just, uh, just very endearing and just so full of energy and, and joy uh, at making music. It was such a, it was such a gas to work with him. So, you know, I, at the end of the recording session, I said, you know, Henry, if you ever need anybody live, give me a call, you know. And now I have to say, I probably said that to everyone back then. But, <laughs> right. but anyway, so several months later, the record comes out and this song called I Wish I Had a Girl Who Walked Like yeah. That yeah. became a top 20 hit.
so the phone rings and it's Henry and he's like, Hey Graham, you wanna go on the road? <laughs> and I was like and actually when he called, I actually had nothing going on. It was nineteen eighty eight. And I had I didn't have anything going on at that time. That was when I was kinda on the outs with Joe and I thought okay. well fuck it, I'll I'll do it. Yeah. So that I mean it, it was a, quite an experience, John. It was um it, it, you know, when we first started gigging, um, you know, I was the, I was like the, I was the luxury item in the band. <laughs> I else could is, see that. <laughs> <laughs> everyone else in the band had been with him for quite a while. And uh -huh. uh, when I first started working with him, you know, he had a lot of gigs on the books before the real, you know, so he was just really be breaking through with yeah. the single. So he, he ended up doing some good opening slots. I remember we opened for this guy, Richard Marks. Sure. And then, and then we did a whole stint opening for Chicago, which was awesome. Nice. We opened for John Mellencamp a couple of times. Yes. In Indiana. We, but, but, but the very, very beginning, when I first joined the band and I got on the rickety old tour bus, um, <laughs> you know, with, with like 25 other people, uh -huh. <laughs> the, the first gig we did was a high school hop. Because <laughs> no that's what was on that's what was on the books, and that's what Henry had been doing for years, you know. And wow. I think that, and I think the same week we did a we did a, a not a, not even a state fair, we did a county fair. Yes. And <laughs> so, yeah, we were playing. To, the audience was seated on bales of straw, you know. Oh, and, and, I mean, you have to appreciate this was way beyond anything i had experienced i believe before. it I, I was i was thinking to myself what the hell have i gotten myself into <laughs> that's what i was just gonna ask you know you're used <laughs> you to you were just talking about flying business class on stepping out oh. and everything and now you're playing high school hops oh my god i know yeah but it was you know what it was i, I wouldn't i wouldn't change any of it it was the, they were wonderful people they were Good. wonderful people henry was was great and i had a i basically spent a year with them best part of 1988 um it, it was wonderful it really was and then i i was i kind of lost touch with henry after that because i started working with joe again when we did blaze of glory and um i i heard that henry had gone through some hard times and, and sure. i was sorry to hear that yeah. but he yeah he it was it was that was a wonderful very unexpected part of my <laughs> it is kind of, my, of the outlier on your resume yeah. but it's a fun one you know well, there's, there's I, been, there's been a few. I mean, I never expected to tour with Joan Baez either. Yeah, that's a different kind of outlier. You know? True. Um, let me ask you one thing. I think you're on his the album that followed up the breakthrough, I've Got Everything. Yes. And there's a song on there called Hey Baby.
That's one yeah. of my favorite songs ever. I love that song. And yeah, uh, that was kind of minor hit as well. I think. Yes, it was. That's it. And yeah. uh, I've realized over the years that I've had the the words wrong. I always think he says, "Hey, baby, I'm home." Let me wrap my love and arms around you. And I'm imagining this guy, you know, full mullet. He breaks open the front door. Hey, baby, I'm home. And he's ready for a big hug. But he says, hey, baby, I'm wrong. And so it's actually uh-huh. him like guessing that, you know, he screwed up or something like that, which is the total opposite idea of this emphatic love song that I imagine. So I always think of the words that it, they're the wrong words, but the words I like better in that song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's anyway. funny, isn't it? Like one word yeah. can completely change everything. Right. Yeah. It uh, just makes it a different kind of song. Anyway, I just wanted to throw some love at Henry Lee Summer because he seems oh, yeah, like a yeah. funny. I would, I would. I hope he hears this, and I, I. I still love the guy to this day. So good. Okay. Well then, and so we have to talk about they might be giants. I'll admit I'm not the world's <laughs> biggest expert on they might be giants. I think they're kind of fun, but. I don't listen to them all the time, but you were, I think, officially a member of the band there for a while, right? Yeah, for about two years. It's funny you, you say that because I, I went from working with them to working with Natalie Merchant. And after <laughs> I'd been working with Natalie for a few months, she said she said to me one day, she said, you know, I almost didn't hire you because you've been working with them. <laughs> 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 and I have to laugh at that, yeah. Well, so, um, yeah, I know. I mean, people either love them or or don't love them but yeah. um uh you know what i i and i had seen them before and i thought they were kind of like eccentric and i i thought you know there's something here musically that's interesting yeah. and once once i was and the reason i ended up playing with them was because my friend brian doherty was their drummer oh and, um brian and i had worked with brian before with a band called the silos yeah so, so anyway so i yeah i ended up uh, touring with the Giants for a couple of years and I'm on an album called Factory Showroom, I think it's That's called. right. S-E-X-X-Y More than enough Around the clock With nobody else S-E-X-X-Y there she is Standing on the bed Cookie in one hand With on her head S-E-X-X-Y X Because it's extra There's right. a live, there's a live album as well, a compilation. I'm on that too. Okay. Uh, but you know what? Again, those guys were great. They were so much fun. They were just complete nuts. And yeah. They were they were nuts on stage and off stage. And I really, yeah, it was different. It was you know, it wasn't uh-huh. it, it wasn't something I would imagine doing forever. But but um, I certainly don't regret that either. It was a lot of fun. Good. If I'm asking this, I don't mean to disparage anyone we've talked about, but we did touch on you kind of looking at yourself saying, how did I get here? You know, when you're a working musician like yourself, 
you're probably just grateful maybe for any gig you can get. If they might be, you know, Joe doesn't need me right now. Well, I guess that's my question. Is Joe always the first priority? If Joe calls, I got to go do what Joe does, but he's not going to call for a while. So I'm open. I can join your team. I can join Henry's team. I can join Natalie's team. Is that kind of how you look at it or is it different than that? I think I do prioritize Joe, of course. But yeah. you know, we had, to, as I told you, I, we both had to learn that lesson. Yeah. Uh, when when I started working with Marshall, because he basically, I think Joe fucked up, and uh, he knew it. Um, so now, whenever he's going to do something, he gives me plenty of notice. Good. So that I can clear the decks, and Good. which I'm That's happy fair. to do. Of course. I've, uh, at this point, I've had 45 years of history with the guy. So. Yeah. Um, uh, but. Um, what was the question? <laughs> well, that was it. I just wonder if you're ever, if there's. Um, oh, you know. were talking about how um, basically uh, I, I'll take any gig that that's yeah, in my nose. Yeah, well, well, the there is an element of that, and especially. I mean, any anybody you know who's been a musician for a long time, it's 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 not an easy way to make a living, a consistent yeah. living. It's not easy, and um, you know, I've 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 raised a couple of kids and. And I had a mortgage and, you know, I I, uh, I would have loved to have not been on the road, but being on the road was how I made the best living. And I kind of had to bite the bullet and it was either just give it all up or or uh, or, or just keep going and hope that. Um, uh, uh, well, the, the best situations I've been in really have been, for instance, working with Natalie and working with Joan Baez, where they they are always happy to see my wife and kids. Oh, nice. No, I won't say any more about that subject. But, okay. um, but you know, uh, <laughs> I, I've, I've accepted gigs where I've thought, you know, I hope this works out. Yeah. There's been a few of those. I suppose the Giants was one of them. Um, I suppose Henry was one of them in a way. I didn't yeah. exactly know what I was getting into. Even, even when, even Joan Baez, I had just come off the Volume 4 tour when uh, another drummer friend of mine who was working with Joan said, are you free in September? And, I was, but I never imagined I would work oh. with Joan Baez. So uh, that again, that turned out to be a delight. So yeah, for for three or four years. Well, you never know. Yeah, no. Joan Baez, man, I would never put you two together, but it worked. <laughs> You're right. I I would I would never put, put this together. Either. <laughs> right. That was that was a different kind of. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. You know, and again, one of the reasons why. That was was such a pleasure was because of the guys in the band who were friends of mine and, and excellent musicians. And we had it. We had I mean, as is so often the case, really, it's the camaraderie that gets you through. I mean, I love Natalie, but she would do some gigs. She would just do all of if she was in a sad mood, she would just pull out all the slowest, most yeah. songs. And if it weren't for the for the camaraderie of the band members, I you know, some of yeah. some occasionally that would be tough to get through i could imagine i um i've had other people on here who have talked about working with natalie and sounds like she's a nice person but maybe a little moody and uh, that that could be the case that it uh you're kind of at the whim of how she's feeling at any given time and sometimes she can be probably a little emotional and that, that oh. rubs off on everyone else oh yes yes very very okay but you know what i mean that's you know, that's what her her fans love that about. That's me. true. That's, that's true. So, that's her thing. You know, and every artist, as I'm sure you know, has their their quirks, you know. Yeah. 
and that's what makes them an artist you know i think there's all there are people who are on the spectrum people who are depressed you know yeah but that's yep. all a part of their art you know that's just what it is so true um okay let me just throw a couple more things at you and then i'll let you go first of all um I really like the Ian Hunter album, Shrunken Heads. I'm glad you did. Yes, I love that album. I especially love the first track, Words. Big mouth. It's a good one. How did you become, you know, how did you become a part of Ian Hunter, Hunter's orbit? Um, because I've, w one of my best friends in the world is is uh, a guy called Tony Shanahan, who plays bass for Patti Smith. And I've known Tony probably for more than 30 years. Mm. And um, Tony was playing with Ian in the mid 2000s. And he had commitments with Patti and couldn't do a bunch of gigs. And so he recommended me. And as it turned out, I knew most of the guys in the band as it was. Mm -hmm. So that was that was an easy, you know. So I basically got the job without having to go through any uh, ugly audition process. And um, that turned into, uh, uh, yeah, it turned into a good year of touring. And then at some point, Ian wanted to make another album. And I was so so thrilled to be a part of that uh, i really i love everyone in the band it was it was a killer band and and um um i thought i thought that was a really good batch of songs too yeah i, I remember i said to ian because to me this was 15 years ago ian is 80 years old now you know? Oh, i know he, he turned 80 last year this year he will be 81 and I, so at the time he was 65 or 66 and i remember saying to him you know, how do you keep doing this? Yeah. And he, you know, you, you keep writing songs and and they're good, you know, and he, and he, yeah. looked, at me and he, he looked at me and he said, well, that's, that's what I do. I'm an artist. Yeah. So that's the story with that. It was it was um, that I, I wish it had gone on longer. But and you you were talking about me prioritizing Joe. Um, I believe at the end of that tour, Joe, we did a tour with um uh, the trio with Dave Houghton mm -hmm. and uh, obviously, uh, you know, I, I, yeah. I, had to I, go. I reluctantly had to uh, bow out, you know? Yeah. I'm just imagining the different crowds you've played to, let alone the different artists you played with. I mean, the people who come to see Joan Baez are going to be very different than the people who come to see Joe Jackson, who come to see Henry who come to see, you know, they might be giants, just so many different spectrums of crowds that come to see the bands that you're a part of, you know, it's interesting. 
it keeps it fresh. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Two last questions. Number one, kind of, we touch on some of the business side on here. I mean, you're, you're obviously a hired gun, gun with a primary job, but it has to fill in gaps with other things. How have you ever had to do anything outside of music or are you, have you always made a living being Graham, maybe one of the best bass players ever, you know? Well, um, that's a very good question too. So I quit my last real job to make look sharp in 1978. Uh, okay. I, was, I was actually a school groundskeeper. <laughs> yeah. That was my gig. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I quit that job in the summer of, in July of, uh, of 1978. And I didn't, the only other real employment I've had since then, apart from music, uh, is for since the beginning of the 90s, once I bought a house, I couldn't, I found I couldn't afford to sit around and wait for mm -hmm. the phone to ring. Uh, so I actually, I got into the uh, publishing business. The mm. uh, I'm talking about like books. Yeah. Um, I, I started as a freelance proofreader and I've been... I, I haven't done so much for the last couple of years, actually, but for for a good 20 something years, I was a freelance proofreader. And then I uh, would do odd days at random house uh, offices in Manhattan, you know, wow. covering as a production editor, covering yeah. for people that were out on vacation or or out sick or something. So, wow. uh, yeah, so that actually is that that. That that backup gig was a lifesaver because I could I, believe it. I could go off and tour for two or three months and come back and make a phone call and I'd get a book to to proofread. So yeah, so that really wow, fascinating. Yeah, because yeah. you're at, you're at the whim of the people you work for, you know, and so you got to attach yourself somewhere. I wondered what you do in the lean times, you know, when there's not I, a gig. You know, I've 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 done okay. I mean, there yeah. are a lot of people I know who I, I I wonder what they do. I yeah, I I, I you know I feel like I've I've had well. First of all, I've had a I've had a a career that's lasted so much longer than I ever imagined it would. Yeah. For one thing, and and second of all, I I managed to, you know, I've, I've managed to keep it going, thanks to finding you know that that other job to fill in sure. the gaps. That's amazing. So I really I really can't complain. Okay. And and now you see I'm I, so my wife died in 2012 and I I, I remarried in 2017. I heard. And, and my my lovely wife Maureen is is uh, she's a professional. She's a uh, school psychologist and uh, oh. So for the first time in my life, the heat is off me to be the breadwinner. <laughs> a luxury I'm getting used to. Very nice. And you guys <laughs> live in Great Neck, New York. We do. Correct? We do. Okay. We do. Okay. That's right. Excellent. Good for you. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Last question. Do you want to tell us about auditioning for Tom Petty? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not, again, it's not a secret. Yeah. It, it, it didn't end well, but, but it was, uh, and that was one of the other learning curves for, for Joe really, because I think until that time, Joe just assumed I'd be there, but it was another gap i think it might have been right when dave left the band and nobody really knew what was going to happen next and um th i think through joe's producer dave kirschenbaum tom petty's manager got my number and called and said tom is thinking of making a change and uh, would you be interested in trying out and of course i at that point i 
I'd never worked with anyone else. So I was a little bit terrified. But at the other hand, I was a huge fan. So long story short, I got on a plane. I flew 10 hours or something to Los Angeles. I didn't know how to write a chord chart at that time. Never had to learn a song that way. So all I had done was immerse myself in in Damn the Torpedoes and, and a couple of other albums. And, you know, basically all those songs were just swimming around in my head. Mm-hmm. And um, so I got off the plane in L.A. and some guy meets me and we're waiting at the baggage carousel and my bass didn't come through. It, it, mm-hmm. it actually arrived the following day. But anyway, oh. so the guy takes me. We're, we're driving to the hotel and the guy says, oh, uh, Tom just called. They're all at the SAR rehearsal studios and they just they're just dying for you to show up. And I said, well, I just got off a plane from a 10 hour flight. And they said, yeah, but they would really like you to go over now. And I was like, oh, my God. OK. All right. What, I, what can I say? So I went over there. I'm fucking completely jet lagged and tired. And exhausted. this sounds like a big excuse, which, you know, uh, it, it maybe well, it is. Doesn't matter. Well, you maybe weren't as ready is. mentally as you anyway. Were. So I, I arrived there and, and I have to use some other base and I was feeling terribly insecure and. And, uh, you know, they're calling Tom's, you know, they, they, I felt like they were all high and I wasn't. Um, and, um, they were all, you know, they were very nice. And I remember Stan Lynch was very nice, but, uh, basically, you know, we ran through a few songs and I did okay. Just okay. okay. You know, I I didn't, I didn't feel like I really acquitted myself that well. And I knew I could have done a better job if I had had a night's sleep and just had a little time to compose myself. Yeah. And if I'd had my own instrument, that would have helped. Yeah. Well, anyway, but whatever. So a couple of days go by and and I got the call, you know, that they uh-huh. decided they decided not to make the change because they're not sure. I think maybe they were just being kind. But but yeah. uh, I think they auditioned me and one other guy and they couldn't make up their minds. So they kept the I can't even remember who the original guy was, but they kept him for a while. Then I think that's after that. They got that guy, Howie. Yeah. Yep. So that's okay. So it was, you know, it was it was very, very flattering and gratifying to be asked and yeah. to be flown out and all of that. And then I think what happened was when I got back and Joe found out of it, found out about it, he <laughs> kind of hit the roof. <laughs> and I think I think I was actually put on a retainer at that point. OK, so that that was probably the first time. I think I don't think any of us even knew that there was such a thing as a retainer. Right. So, Okay, I had a feeling. So that, how did you, how did you uh, how, did you watch those interviews on the on the on the I YouTube? Did. Um, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that story before then, and you seemed reluctant to tell it. But I thought, hey, it's out there. So well, it would have uh, been a better it would have been a better story if I'd got the gig. But you know, no, but it's again, better that you didn't get the gig. That's more yeah. interesting. Well, it's it. Well, it may not be more interesting, but but I think it would have completely reshaped my life, and probably who knows what would have happened. I I, I would have had to move to L.A. for one thing. Yep. And, and you know, I, I don't know. And I probably yeah, never, would, I probably never would have worked with Joe again. So no. So yeah, you would anyway. have been. That's true, boy. Ooh, I hadn't even. I guess because I like Joe's music more than Tom, I think that's a better gig. But yeah, you'd be a multimillionaire. And heavily employed for like the next oh, thirty-five years or whatever. Sorry. Shut up, will you? I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, Rub it man. in. Rub no, it I'm in. Sorry. I didn't even think about that. I'm no, sorry. No, no, no. I'm anyway. kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just okay. Kidding. 
Well, look, uh, Graham, this was a dream come true. I, if you can't tell, I love you a lot. And uh, oh, you've done so you. many things that I... You seem very lovable yourself. Well, thank you very, very much for talking with me. It means the world. All right, there you have it. Graham, maybe. I love Graham. I love that conversation. I'm so grateful that that happened. Now, just to come full circle, we kick this episode off with a song off Joe's first album, possibly his most famous one ever. Is she really going out with him? And we're closing it out with a song off that last album, Fool, called Fabulously Absolute. So we've, we've gone full circle here, okay? All of it, with all these other great stories and everything in between. Thanks again, Graham, and thank you so much, Tom Teeley, for putting in a good word for me. I'm so grateful. Now, next week's guest, we are talking to another fantastic and very well-accomplished songwriter. So this year has been a great year for songwriters. We had Charlie Midnight, we had Bonnie Hayes, we had Holly Knight, and now we're hearing from another person who wrote some hits that you know, a couple of huge ones that everybody knows, and then had a, and then a bunch of others that just have fa- fascinating stories attached to them. So that's what's coming up next week. I think you're going to like it. You may not know this person by name, but no doubt you know a lot of their, a lot of this person's stuff. Huge thanks, as always, to my right-hand man, Jan the Man Makevich, for everything that you do. Thank you, buddy, for being my partner in this. You guys, you can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send me a message on there. Either of us a message on there. Jan, too. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at The Hustle Pod. We still have a bunch of bonus material that we're hanging on to. Some of that may see the light of day this week. So uh, some deep dives, some bonus episodes, whatever it might be. Anyway, thank you all for joining us. Thank you for going on this journey with us. We love you. We're so grateful for you. We will see you soon.